by name, word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Deliver me from the oppression of man, so will I keep thy precepts. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant, and teach me thy statutes. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes, because they keep not thy law. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright art thy judgments. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. Once again, we're in Psalm chapter 119, reading verses 129 to 138. And I'd like to read those first two verses again, verse 129 and 130. Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore doth my soul keep them. The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. Here's a beautiful benediction going back when David finishes up up to verse 128, he goes, I esteem all thy precepts, and concerning all thy words, basically he's saying to be right, I hate every false way. I hate the false teachers. I hate the false preachers. And they had them back then, just like we do today. And so David gives this benediction, how he says, I love thy commandments. I esteem all thy precepts. I hate every false way. And David loved the word of God better than he loved his money. He considered it above gold. He said the law of the Lord is perfect concerning converting the soul. And he had plenty of excess. He had plenty of riches. But he esteemed the word of the Lord above all of his riches. And so even from the sieges of the wealth of the nations that he conquered, he esteemed all of God's word more of the most important thing in his life. And we had started off last week we had some, a lot of information. I'd like to go over that for a few minutes and then go back to the seven points that we were talking about that we were going to finish up. And we, we, we have here um, all many different words. If you look here in Scripture, I'd like to go over this again because I think it's a good way to imprint in our minds and in our hearts God's Word. If we look at verse 129, I'd like to point out in each verse what word points to the Word of God. Look at verse 129. Yes, thank you. What about 130? Of thy words, excellent. And then what about 131? There's the commandments. And there we see that, that basically the commandments of the Lord, are he calls them God's word. There's a very important reason why we're going to say that. That's very important to understand. And we're going to look at this. And we see here that other words that we saw back, actually, if you read earlier on in, verse, in verses, the, the early verses of Psalm 119, he talks about God's testimonies, His judgments, His precepts, His commandments. There's all kinds of words that point, and they all have extremely important meanings because today there is a problem, a real problem with the, 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 the marriage of the Old Testament with the New Testament and the law of God and its commandments. And there's something even more important we need to look at today. And we're going to look at that here in a few minutes. But David loved the commandments because he esteemed them to be the ultimate standard. Perfect. Righteous. Reasonable. How many people do you hear say that the Word of God is reasonable? Today, basically, it's all, all it's called today is an ancient artifact. Something that happened, maybe happened years ago, and at the, the events and the people that are in the Scripture are basically all fables. And that Jesus Christ didn't even really exist, some even say today. And so what we're looking at is we're trying to bolster and embolden our hearts to be able to wrap our arms around Scripture and know that that is the ultimate standard by which we live by. And it's in our confession 
about the Word of God being our example of obedience and how we are supposed to read it, we are supposed to study it, and we're supposed to hide it in our hearts. Remember, David loved God's commandments, and we must love them because they are the epitome of his perfect image. He says in 129, Thy testimonies are wonderful. My soul doth keep them, and the entrance of thy words giveth light. And we know that in the book of John, we see we go further on in the book of John, verses uh, chapter 3, when Christ is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, darkness has come into the world, but I have overcome the darkness. And Christ calls himself, which he is perfectly, I am the light of the world. And here's, here's some, uh, I think, some very important, we didn't get to this part last week because we're still working on these seven, um, seven uh, uh, applications that we learned of something very troubling last week. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But David loved God's commandments. And here are some quotes about Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture. And I'd like to read, read them to you. Has everyone here heard of Ray Comfort? I think that he's incredible. He has, he has a really incredible ministry where he open-air preaches and he brings, goes to colleges and he brings young people to the Lord. And he says, To forsake the inerrancy of Scripture is to stuff humanity's only candle of truth. Inerrancy is the ship's rudder, the traveler's compass, the lamp to our leap, I'm sorry, the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. So he says to forsake the inerrancy of Scripture is to snuff out the candle of truth and to put that light out. Ultimately, that can never be done. The Lord says it cannot be done. But it's, it's been a real objective in many places of worship. Lisi. Mm-hmm. That's right. Right. It is. Right. So I don't know, just again, just keep a little comment, but it just feels so you know, you would never see Hanukkah turned into a fat man in a red suit, and you'd never see That's that's a good point. Right. Right. And the Lord the Christ said, If they hated me, they will hate you. And they will come after you. They will they will come after you to kill you. And that happened. And so going back to what Lisi says, and it goes all the way back, what are some of the ways that we've learned, that we've seen, we're not even talking about it in church or any of our sermons or any of our Sunday school classes, but what are the, some of the things that we've seen out in public where Christ has, Christ has been, just, he, Christ has been uh, uh, just maligned and Satan has tried to take these false ways and tried to tear apart Scripture and try to tear tear apart the inerrancy of it. Any of the church marquees you see around, 
Right? That's a very good point. And there's so many, there's so many things. David says, I hate every false way, as he gives a benediction to the Hebrew letter part of Ain in verses 121 to 128. He says, I hate every false way. That's one of the false ways. There's, they spend tens of thousands of dollars on these signs in front of these churches, and you get jokes out in front of them. You know, you, you, you see this, this church is furnished with knee mail and all this kind of goofy stuff that's there. I mean, what are some of the other ways that Satan's trying to do this? And we're going to look at a big one today, and it's one that we haven't considered. It's very, very important. Pastor. Praise. Look at that. Right. No bumper stickers, but scripture. Exactly. Amen. And, and look at all the people that can drive by and read that. And scripture. Amen. So scripture has power. Teresa. Amen. Well, a lot of people are looking for that little pat on the back. Well, look, right, look at some of the signs that we've seen, we've talked about in the last year. All souls' blessings, down right down the street here at 7 o'clock on Tuesday night. I know I've said it over and over again. I guess I'll have to stop saying it when I, when I really start processing that I can't even believe this. But we actually drove by a local Lutheran church on the way home from church, and they had the pet blessing service in the front yard. They had dogs. People lined up. There must have been 30 people with their dogs. And the priest was out there putting blessings on the animals. Boy, I wonder why they wouldn't let all the dogs into the sanctuary. That's a tough one to figure out. Dave. Bike blessings. The bikes have souls. No, they don't. That's the thing. It's this All Souls Day. They're praying. Do you know that praying in the Old Testament and trying to reach your dead loved ones was an absolute capital punishment? Moses would have had you killed if you did that. That was one of the Levitical laws. You were not, you were not supposed to do that. I've got to tell this story. Maybe I told it once, once before, but I was listening to a message years ago, and I heard it again. And our, Dr. Sproul was talking about how when he was first getting into the ministry, he was in this one church and they, the young people in the church invited him over on a Sunday night. He wanted to have a Bible study. They wanted him to have a Bible study with them. He goes over into the house and they all sit down and they said, well, when we're finished the Bible study, we want to go into this back room because every Sunday night we go, we try to approach and we try to pray to our dead loved ones. And he says, he goes, Whoa, whoa, whoa. He goes, do you realize what you're doing in the Old Testament? You would have been stoned for doing this and all. And this is a big thing in so-called evangelical churches. But there's something we, I think it's important for us to always talk together and to always be encouraging one another why Scripture is the standard. I don't like to stand here and I don't like to say, why do we believe what we believe? Why do we believe in our faith? This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about why do we believe in the inerrancy of God's Word as the ultimate standard by which we live by that has faith and obedience. It's unwavering and it absolutely is the standard by which we live by. 
And there's, there's, there's a very important reason what we'll talk about. The first, the, the first quote that we have about the inerrancy of Scripture, for those that just got here, I want to read it one more time. Ray Comfort says, to forsake the inerrancy of Scripture is to snuff, to snuff humanity's only candle of truth. Inerrancy is the ship's rudder, the traveler's compass, the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. And he even quotes Scripture in that wonderful quote. Franklin Graham, he has some wonderful quotes. He said, to, to demonstrate, to demonstrate trust in the inerrant word of God is to exhibit faith in the one who spoke life into existence. History and human nature prove the truth of the Bible every day, but the greatest evidence is seen in changed lives that cannot be denied. The inf this infallible book is its own great commentary. That's brilliant. The entirety of your word, Lord, is truth. Psalm 119, 160 said, Thy word is true from the beginning. He quoted this. He, he even put Psalm 119, 160 in this quote. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. And we read that inscription, When the heaven and the earth be destroyed, God's word endures forever and ever and ever and ever. Have you ever tried to process everlasting life, eternity? Have you ever tried to think of what's, what it's like to not have a clock? To be in perpetuity, in absolute perfect felicity with God, in perfect health, in absolute perfect existence, with an absolute perfect con, 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 uh, con, uh, perception of what's going on and the Lord opening that up to us? Forever and ever and ever and ever. And when 10 million years has gone by, it does seem like a second. Because it's forever. Switch gears a minute. How would you like to burn in hell under those conditions? Forever and ever the worm dieth not. And that's why people, see, we see people here on this earth, the suicide rate of people, they, they, think, they literally think that the earth is the actual hell God's talking about, so they commit suicide to get out of hell. Boy, what a rude awakening. And forever and ever and ever. This is how important the inerrancy of Scripture it is. John Calvin says, but a most pernicious error widely prevails that Scripture has only so much weight as is conceded to it by the consent of the church. Now we can see why the inerrancy of Scripture has fallen by its own weight, by not the actual inerrancy, though that'll never fall by its own weight, but why the teaching of it has fallen by the weight of the churches that have taken the mantle for them to interpret it and to take the Bibles out of the hands of the people. It is the congregation's, it's the congregation's number one priority to be in Scripture, question authority. It's your job to keep the leaders of the church in line by Scripture and to ask questions. And we're all iron, iron sharpening iron is what we are. But when you go into a church and the people have no say, and the leadership basically tells you and does its own interpretation and has absolutely no encouragement for Scripture and for the people to learn themselves, you got a problem with that. And that happens a lot. Lisa. Right.
That's right. And it's very easy to go off that off-ramp to a really, bad, a really bad neighborhood when it comes to Scripture. But a pernicious error widely prevails, John Calvin says. Charles Spurgeon says, within the Scripture there is a balm for every wound, a salve for every sore. Boy, that'd make a good bumper sticker. There is a balm for every wound and a salve for every sore. That's one of many. Spurgeon also says, The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. Providing amusement for the people is nowhere spoken of in the scriptures as a function of the church. The need is biblical doctrine so understood and felt that is set men afire. Spurgeon says, you know, when I was growing up, there was a difference between church and bars on Friday night. There was a big difference between that. In church, you know, we had people that came, I remember Cub Hill and other churches, they would come in from the bars. And they would come in and they'd hear the gospel and they'd see something different. You go to a bar on Friday night, which I hope you don't, and you hear a band and you have all the entertainment and all the stuff, and you walk into some of these local entertainment centers that are octagons right here, what's the difference? I mean, the only difference is there's not Jack Daniels up at the coffee bar. Maybe not. You know, that might even be changing that soon. But it's all just the same thing. Lisa. Down Joppa, down Joppa Road. It's a, uh, I wrote them and told them how crazy they are. But they literally have a service on Sunday morning at a bar and they go right to brunch. They have alcohol. It's a Sunday morning worship service. Worship. I can only imagine, you know, Christ turning the water into wine or something. You know, something like that, because that's the one they use. You know, I want to give you a little lesson on how, how, to, how to deal with that, about alcohol. When somebody comes up and starts putting that in your face, say to them, please, excri- please exposit to me verse by verse what actually happened with Jesus with turning the water into wine. Can you tell me what Mary said? Can you tell me what the governor said? And put them to the test on that. And tell them to explain that to you verse by verse. And make sure you're ready for that. Because if they can't explain to you the words that came out of those, those wonderful, that governor's mouth and Mary's mouth and what actually happened in the details, then they shouldn't be sitting there saying, defending a whole nother objective. They shouldn't be doing that. Because most people that try to put you up against the wall with the scripture and they say that, they don't even know what they're talking about. So if you know what you're talking about and you're in that, you can not only you cannot you can not only take them take them to the woodshed. You can give them a good lesson and teach them wonderfully something they need to know. David says he hated every false way. How many false ways are right before our eyes right now? This is part two of the message this morning. We're going into part two. What time we have? All right, we got good time. We have three parts today. I wanted to talk about somewhat verse by verse about what David's talking about, and it all kind of lumps together because we're talking about an energy of Scripture. Now, last week we left off of something very interesting that we had incredible discussion on, and this is the platform, and then we're going to go to the third part, which I think is fascinating. Last week we talked about there's a Christian so-called Christian, it's called Progressive Christian Religious News, and some of the writing was headed by a man named Matthew DeStefano, and he says, 
Let's start with the obvious. Now, you've got to pay attention to this, please, right now. You're not going to know where we're going. I'm not saying you're not, but I'm just saying just in case. Let's start with the obvious. The Bible never claims to be the inerrant word of God. And this is what is being taught. And so we're all sitting around here saying, you know, well, I don't need to hear this, maybe. And maybe you're not, but I'm just saying, hypothetically, maybe we, we believe this. We believe that, the, that Scripture is the holy, inerrant word of God. Thank the Lord. And if you don't, well, let's have it out right now. But, but, I'm, but I am saying, this is what's being taught. This is where what Lisi was talking about, we were talking about David says every false way. This is where Satan has gotten into the churches and is taken away, which is the third part of the message today. And I'll probably go straight into next week, creeds. Creeds, is in the historicity of the Christian church, have been very foundational and extremely important. And I'll tell you why, as soon as we read the rest of these. I'm not going to stay on this all day. This makes me sick to even read it, but we need to read this. The first one last week, this man says the Bible is not the inerrant word of God, as so many Christians think. He goes, but it's not. I'm sorry. He goes, it's not. Scripture is not the holy inerrant word of God. And he says, now before you gird up your loins and fit yourself ready for battle, here are seven reasons why I say such an inflammatory thing. Is there nothing wrong with what he's saying? Why does he call it inflammatory? That's, I mean, this is, it's, it's contradictive. It's like, it's like atheists and how atheists talk about how they hate God. How do you hate something you don't believe in? And why do you take its name in vain? Well, they have their own special day, and that's April 1. That's their, that, that's, their, that, that's their holiday of the year. April Fool's Day is what it is. Number one, he says the Bible, I'm not, we went through this last week, but real quick, the Bible never claims to be the holy and errant word of God. He says, let's start with the obvious. And so Proverbs 35, 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. And Luke 4, 4 says, And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, The man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And then he goes on to say, When Christ is talking to Satan, by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Why would you say that the, the, word, the very word of God is not inerrant? That, that contradicts itself right there. That's number one. Number two, not only is the Bible not holy and errant. He says, neither is Christ. So how can we believe either one? You're playing with fire with that one. They're all, you're, all, you're playing with fire with them all. That's, that's a bad one. He says, it, it, he, he says, in John's prologue, the Bible tells us that Christ is the Word of God. Better yet, Christ is the Logos of God. He says, but simply, according to Greek philosophy, the Logos is basically only the structuring of the principle of reality. No, that's not what John 1.1 1, 1 says. It says Christ is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning. All things were created by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. That's, that settles it. In Hebrew 4, Hebrews 4.15 we read, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. See, the definition of sin today has been totally abrogated also because people don't believe that being purified and perfect means that you are without sin. They literally believe that Christ sinned. 
That's number two. Number three, going back, the Bible is human. How can it be without error if it's human? It says, he says, sure, the Bible is inspired by God, but what isn't? Humans are inspired by God. Other books are inspired by God. The, the, the Bhagavad Gita is inspired by God. That's the Quran, basically, for the, for the Hindus. And then he says, the Quran is inspired by God. My books are inspired by God. They're perhaps not entirely endorsed by God. And no one would claim we are inerrant. All books, so basically he just took the Bible and stuck it on the shelf with every other book that was written, and it's no better than any one of those books. That's number three. So we got through the first three. Here's number four, going forward. Oh, this is a bad one. And Satan has basically won the battle. He will never win the war, but he's won a lot of battles on this hill. The Bible contains errors. Let's put aside, he says, the crazy stuff for a second. Like a sun that stops midway through the sky. Imagine what would happen if that really happened. Or leviathans that roam the open waters. Or dragons with seven heads. Or wooden ships that contain meat-eating predators for half a year without having prey to devour. The Bible contains theological errors. How do I know? It makes contradictory claims. Boy, have we heard that one before, haven't we? That's okay, though, because, again, it's human. Humans debate, humans disagree, and that's okay. So it's okay for God to be a liar, and it's okay for the theological objectives that we know to be the standard of our lives to be nothing but arbitrary, to be compromised. And so what do you think the books in Scripture the most are? And it kind of, I, I've kind of seen it, you know, I don't know, I could be wrong, but I've kind of seen it kind of like in a, in a several-step process. Where do they usually start with, with the contradiction of Scripture? Yes. It's the Gospels, creation, the New Testament against the Old Testament. It now has become a boxing match that the New Testament has knocked out the Old Testament. And it's down for the count, basically. Lisa. Right. Right. What did Calvin said that the New Testament is the is the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. They work back and forth. You don't. When people say this, you already know that they haven't read the New Testament because if you will understand that, the most quoted prophet in the New Testament over a hundred and some times I forget how many it was is Isaiah. His words are, look at, look at the Ethiopian eunuch and how Philip runs up and he starts quoting Isaiah 53. Paul, over and over again. Christ said, Moses, Moses knew me. He said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And many, over and over again, we see the Old Testament being lifted up and loved and, and just illuminated by the prophets in, in, in the Old Testament and then and then confirmed by the apostles, the disciples, Christ himself in the New Testament. Paul wrote, Paul the Apostle, which we can look for, we can look at very chiefly, because he wrote more than 60% of the New Testament, 
Over and over and over, he uplifts the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gospel over and over and over again. And all the way to his death. The Bible contains errors. My Bible says in Psalm 19.7, let's look up some verses. Can someone look up Psalm 19 verses 7 through 10? Do we need to go further than these verses? No, we do not need to go further than these verses to, to, to confirm this. But there are so many more. Praise the Lord. Perfect. Thank you, Lisey. We used to sing that. We had a little Sunday school song we used to sing, if you remember this. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Look at the words that are, that are, that are basically woven into this beautiful literature here. The law of the Lord, it's perfect. It's the, the testimony, it's sure. The statutes are right, and they rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord, it's pure, enlightening the eyes. It's clean. It endures forever. It's righteous altogether, and it's more to be desired than anything on this earth. That's the law of the Lord. That's the Word of God. Do we really need to be taught that that's what the Word of God means, that it's the law of the Lord? Well, if we do, then we go to Psalm 119 and look at all the different words that describe what the Word of God really is. That's a good place to start. The Bible contains errors. No, it doesn't. It converts the soul, and it is perfect. So we debunked that real easy. That didn't take five minutes. That's number four. Oh, number five. Well, this, this one can even cause Presbyterian Bible-believing churches, even in, even, in, even in our own Presbytery and even in other neighboring Presbyteries. This can cause a little problem because we had a problem with this. Here's the number five. Ready for this one? There are different Bibles. That's a good one. He brings up a very good point, even though he's contradicting himself in every way. That is a good point. So let's try to make this very simple. Very simple, okay? Let's just say that you are home and you've got a real big project coming up, okay? Let's just say maybe it's your refrigerator's gone bad. You've called like we do now. It's a little different than it was years ago. You call the repair guy. Can't be, we can't make it for a month. We're understaffed. We don't have the parts. Okay, So you, figure, you, you may have a mechanical ability and you decide to fix it yourself. You need it. You've got to have the freezer. Maybe you've got people coming over that weekend and you may, maybe it's what I went through for the last three years. Our ice maker went up about eight different times. And I was getting really tired of buying ice and making it. So what do you do? What happens if your refrigerator has 25 different manuals and, and, and 25 different dialects with 25 different types of wording and you have to sift through every one of the manuals to find the right one to fix that ice maker? That's going to drive you crazy. So out of all these scriptures, there's got to be one. There has to be one God's word that is the standard that goes all the way back. This leads into the next third part of this message, basically. When you go to the creeds and the religions that we believe in, that are the foundational principles of our teaching and what we believe, they're all backed up by the King James Bible. Confession of faith is the constitution of this church. Lisa, Lisa I'm sorry.
Right. Absolutely. It's their creed. Right. It's their creed. It's not, it's not the, histor- the historical creeds of the church, right? Go to Revelations chapter 22. We're going to find this verse. Verses 18 and 19. Somebody read that. Man, we need to take this seriously. It backs up what Lisa says. And she's talking about the undergirding of the foundation of where it breaks down, basically, when Scripture is torn apart and it's been abrogated and it's been basically vandalized, is what... Uh, a, a, a real good theologian about a hundred years said it, it's vandalized. Amen. Last week, Greg said it. This week, Lisa said it. Not one jot, not one tittle, not one, not, nothing is to, is to be taken out because the meanings cannot be changed. And so, number four, basically this man says, it's okay There's the Bible that, that the Bible contains errors because it puts us all really on a good playing field. He says there are different Bibles. And then he comes back in number six, the Bible has been edited a lot. Down through the ages, when has it been edited? You have the King James Bible, you've been reading it. When? When has it been added to or taken? When other Bibles have been created. That's when. That's when the words have been changed. The word begotten has been taken out. The word virgin has been taken out. But not the original, from the original manuscripts. It has not been changed. It has not. And there was a big controversy years ago about part of, the, of 1 John, that I think it's chapter 5, doesn't even belong in Scripture. I talked to a pastor several years ago He's not part of this, this church or anything like that, but he said there are 2,000 words in the Bible, and he was digging his heels in, that do not belong in Scripture. And I had to ask him, which 2,000 words? I never got an answer. Which 2,000 words don't belong in the original manuscripts that were given to us that the Lord's preserved for us? The Bible has been edited. He says the Bible, as we currently know, it has undergone a lot of changes. It has been edited. 
heavily. Hell, it was, he says, hell, hell has been changed, basically. That's, that's been edited for folks to believe different things about it. And he goes, yes, I know. And he says it sarcastically, even in writing the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Masoretic text, the, the Masoretic text was translated and interpreted by 70 Jewish scholars and then was the Bible folks were using. So I guess that doesn't necessarily mean it still isn't the word of God. He goes, but come on, it's not likely, is it? He's saying it's not likely that it's been changed. Well, the ones he's talking about have been changed. They've been amended and they have been completely, completely molested and ripped like our Constitution. Our Constitution doesn't read like it did when it was originally, it was originally put together. And that Constitution was predicated on the Ten Commandments and the Westminster Confession of Faith. You know, Benjamin Franklin had a Westminster Confession of Faith, and his name, they found one with his name in it. He had it signed. That confession is very important. This is the last one. Jesus didn't have a Bible. I mean, you've got to be really stupid to say that. That's the seventh reason, number seven. And of course, isn't it amazing how he uses the perfect number of reasoning, seven reasons? Jesus didn't have a Bible. He is the Bible. Matthew. Right. All things were created by him. Newsflash, he says, Jesus didn't carry a Bible with him. That wasn't a thing back then unless you were a scholar at a university or something. And sure, while Jesus studied the scriptures, it's not entirely clear what his scriptures were. Why? Because like Christianity, different Jewish sects have different canons. Further, when Jesus did quote scripture, he, like Paul after him, did it creatively. What, as he went along? He just started thinking about redemption and dying on the cross as he went along. Oh, by the way, I think I'll die on the cross for people. I think that'd be the right thing to do. That's blasphemy. He says here, he says, Jesus didn't have a Bible. Well, I guess he missed that part. What we looked at in Acts chapter 9 several, several months ago. Oh, it's about a year ago. Acts chapter 9, when Christ calls down to Paul and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting thou me? That was the word of God. He says, I am the church. And you're going to go persecute those people in Damascus. Your time's up now. You're going to go through me. He is scripture. He is the word. And he's perfect. Hated every false way. Okay. I'd like to get back to part of this next week. Those are the seven steps. But this is the third part I'd like to talk about. And I'm not taking credit for any of this. I don't want to take credit for this because I... I you know, I, I, I've been told by other pastors and about using commentaries and different things, and they said, you just pick different fruit off the tree, you put it together, and that's fine. This was a message that I heard yesterday. The Ligonier Conference now has a two-day winter conference, and, it's, and it was on Friday and Saturday. All week, I really encourage you all to try to find some time to listen to the whole week. Go back to go into Renewing Your Mind in the Archive and look at the, there's a five-part series about antinomianism anti-law. You need to hear that. You want to really embolden what you know about Scripture. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson has to say about this. But Burke Parsons is the one that took over for Dr. Sproul down at, down at St. Andrew's Chapel. And I started watching this, and I started thinking to myself, I mean, I was actually not even doing this to study. I was doing this just kind of like for entertainment. I love to listen to messages. And I sat there and I started listening to it. And as soon as he started talking, I got this out. I'm not even halfway finished the message. It's an hour and like 20 minutes. And I started taking notes. 
he said some things that I mean, it really brought this together. We have scripture. We have all of this, these forces that are against us right now. People with these seven things that we just read, which is, to us it's ridiculous, but people who have never heard this before, it gets into their brains. And they think that the Bible does have errors. They think that all the Bibles are fine. And not only do they think that the Bibles are fine, they think that what is equal to Scripture is going into a bookstore and reading some kind of a self-help by Joel Osteen, Paula White, Beth Moore, Joyce Myers, or, 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 or some of the G21, great, these, these so-called great writers. And they think that they're the same thing as worshiping God. Now they believe at home it's okay to worship on the Sabbath day to read a book by Joel Alstein, that it's the same thing. It's the exact same thing of doing exactly what God says not to do. And he said, what, what, did, what did Moses say? What did the Lord tell Moses say? The first time you go into Pharaoh, you tell him, let my people go so that they can worship me in my sanctuary. And they can go out into the temple and worship me. And that was a, that was a call to a physical worship. What we have here and what, what Brother Parsons was talking about were creeds and confessions. Let me read you these notes and we'll finish. Read some of these notes if I can even read them. Because I was writing kind of fast. But his creeds and confessions are important. Historically, they are a respectful discussion that gives us a reliable Basically, a reliable view of Scripture, barriers of Scripture. And do we have faithful creeds? He talks about the historicity of them. And he said when he started talking, the first thing he said, Pastor, Pastor Parsons, he says, when I first went to one of the Bible conferences down, he goes, I was dirt poor and I had nothing. He said, I can only get into a couple of sessions because that's all I could afford. You could pay for like one or, you know, a session here or there. You know, I, I personally thought it'd be wonderful for, that's for them to just let him in, but maybe he couldn't do it. So he goes in, he hears a couple of the sessions, and he said he walked out and he said, I saw a book on a table. He said it was $4, a white book. And he said, how could I not buy that? He goes, $4 isn't going to kill me. He buys it, and guess what it was? It was the Westminster Confession of Faith. He reads it. He says, I wish somebody would have shown me the Confession of Faith when I was younger. He says, it's not infallible. He says that in the notes here. It's not infallible. Creeds are not infallible. But there is a historicity of creeds in the Christian church that have never wavered. The foundational principles of what they say about Scripture, about who God is, about how we are to worship, about how we are to elect elders, deacons, how we are supposed to put our former government, comes from the creeds. Look at some of the creeds down through the ages that we remember. There's the Council of Trent. There's the, uh, the, the, um, the, the Council of Dort, I think, is one of them. There's the Heidelberg Confession. Our Constitution is the Westminster Confession of Faith with the shorter, the larger catechism, and it lays out the Constitution of the Church. And he talks about how important it is to have creeds. He goes, the Christian that has a good, true creed is a truth that we cannot say. And this is what he says about this. You ever go to a church or you speak to people that are in some kind of religious setting that say, this is my truth. You have your truth. He said, run for the exit doors. 
because the if it's your truth and if it's your if it's your manifesto, it's not of God. Because the creeds of the Christian church go all the way back to the ultimate standard and they confess that scripture is the ultimate standard by which we live by. That's what they say. The ones that don't but don't do that and they come back and they speak about liturgy or they speak about sacraments or they talk about how the pope must give this interpretation. They're the ones that you have to be very very careful of. And here's and we're going to end here in a minute but he says not he says most of our councils were most of our councils have stayed consistent. Creeds are subordinate to scripture, but they support scripture. He says there are many ministries that give professions. And here's big this is a big one, but they invalidate them by what they do not say. When you go online and you look up churches, look at their creeds and confessions. And when you see their creeds and confessions, look at the pictures. You will find that the creeds and confessions do not line up with what they are actually doing in their church on their videos. The confession talks about obedient worship as opposed, not, as opposed to what the current community conscience is, but the confession teaches us how to worship in a sanctuary the way Christ did. And if we're worshiping that way, I've seen three churches in the last year. One of them was a fellow I grew up with. And I saw, he actually came to me and he said, I can't even believe it. He goes, Timmy, I can't believe you're, he always called me Timmy. I can't believe you're reformed. And I was like, I'm so glad you're reformed. I didn't know until I got on, got on I went, went on, I saw videos of his church. He's got a cutout of himself with a big smile on his face in the middle of this great big, not orchestra, but rock band. Guitars, drums. That does not line up with the confessions about biblical, obedient worship. There's parties. There's palm trees. There's a video of literally him giving communion in a Hawaiian shirt with, with, with Bermuda shorts and sandals on after having a, a, a service out on the beach. It's there. You can see it. In fact, our presbytery was really thinking about talking with him until they saw the videos. And the creeds are on the website. So Burke says, what I, he is the problem that I have. He said, I cannot refer people to churches anymore. That is so sad. When he said that, I almost broke out into tears. He goes, I cannot refer people to churches anymore because they change with the wind every week. And he talks about the problem with creeds and religions in the church today is the creeds start in the synod. They funnel down into the ministers. They go out into the pews. And then they end up in the home. And today, in the home, people have now come up with their own creeds with the relativism that they can pretty much have their own manifesto and do whatever they want and God's okay with it. And that's what he's talking about. We'll finish up with that. and we'll, We have some more verses to go through next week. But I think this is a fascinating way to show us through our creeds and confessions how Scripture is so important. Lisa.
Right. Even though that soul was burned. Amen. And it's in our Bible. Right. So, and there's a, so anyway, that goes anyway. Remember when Moses took the first law and he broke it. He was furious. What did the Lord do? Just lately, he preserved it. He made another one. Yeah, he'll keep doing it. So let's, anybody else? We'll finish. I'll ask if uh, Pastor Britton, can you close us this morning? Thank you, brother.